0: Welcome back. I'm Max Bergman, director of the Stuart Center and Europe-Russia-Eurasia program at CSIS. And I'm Maria Snigovaya, senior fellow for Russia and Eurasia. And you're listening to Russian Roulette, a podcast discussing all things Russia and Eurasia from the Center for Strategic International Studies. and you are listening to Russian Roulette. Today's episode is about the really concerning and uh, sad topic of the escalating waves of repressions in Russia and what it means for both the regime and what remains of the organized domestic opposition. I am joined today by two very special guests, uh, colleagues of mine, uh, Natalia Arno is the founder of the president of the Free Russia Foundation, uh, an organization that was created back in 2014. After Natasha was exiled from Russia for her pro-democracy work, Natasha, probably you've been really doing a great job back in Russia. Natalia has more than 17 years of experience in providing organizational support, training, advocacy on behalf of pro-democracy Russians. Prior to founding Free Russia Foundation, she planned and executed countrywide programs in the fields of education, grassroots organizing, civic education, party building, women, youth leadership, civil society development, and local governance during her tenure as the Russia Country Director for the International Republican Institute. Back in 2008, she became the IRI Country Director for Russia, the post she held until 2014. My second guest today, no less special, Miriam a uh, Senior Director for Russia and Eurasia at the National Endowment for Democracy. Back in 2003, Miriam was awarded a PhD in international affairs from Boston University for her dissertation on the Russian presidency, the teaching wars, and social and political problems in the North Caucasus. Since then, she's been working nonstop in the field of the NGO, specifically trying to assist uh, civic groups across the region. She has 14 years of experience in political analysis and democracy promotion in post-Soviet Eurasia, and in 2005, she became a member in the Council of Foreign Relations. In 2010, uh, Miriam quoted the Chechen struggle, dependence won and lost, with former Chechen Foreign Minister Ilyas Sakhmadev. Welcome to our podcast, ladies. Uh, Natasha and Miriam, it's great to have you here.
1: Thank you, Masha. Great to be here.
0: Thank you. Thanks very much for having us. Unfortunately, the news coming from Russia are uh, very, uh, very concerning. Uh, since the start of the war, we've seen the most recent of repressions escalating. Just recently, our common friend and colleague Vladimir Karimurza got charged with uh, literally a quarter century in uh, jail uh, for what we assume was actually his work he's been doing on sanctions, support for pro-democracy movements in Russia. Uh, Similarly, Alexei Navalny, one of the main leaders of Russian opposition, now faces up to a total of 30 years of imprisonment on new charges associated with terrorism extremism. We also know that Navalny is kept in jail in Russia under, in very bad conditions. He's almost literally tortured on a daily basis. Beyond Vladimir and, and Alexei, there's also multiple cases of Russian patriots, civic activists, uh, just random citizens who get arrested and accused on multiple charges. And frankly, it looks increasingly like Russia may not no longer be just an authoritarian regime. Maybe it's really becoming totalitarian. These are the set topics that we wanted to discuss today. So my first question to you is whether what we are witnessing today is part of the broader trend that started back in 2011-12, or is it something qualitatively, quantitatively new that unraveled since the beginning of this war? So essentially, how do we explain uh, this uh, really unprecedented, even by Russian own standards, and that means something—the wave, wave of repressions—and essentially, what do we make of it, Natasha? Let, let's start with you.
2: Well, first of all, yes, uh, uh, probably a quarter century sounds less scary than twenty-five years. It's still the same amount of uh, years, and it's—it's really—it's a huge amount. It's a. Stalin-era sentence for Vladimir Karamazov, and especially dangerous because of his uh, health condition, and with uh, such a disease that he has, uh, polyneuropathy, which is even on the list of diseases, uh, which according to the Russian law, like twisted and all this repressive Russian law, he shouldn't be in detention at all, uh, which is difficult to treat even in freedom. Really, we are very, very worried about our colleague and friend, and um, of course, 25 years is uh, absolutely, it's uh, basically a life sentence for him. But at the same time, uh, we understand that uh, the regime uh, is probably too optimistic, given 25 years to Vladimir and all this amount of years, of new and new charges against Navalny and eight years to I- Yasha. And of course, it can be long. Unfortunately, it will be longer than we all want. <laughs> but uh, it won't be forever at the same time. It's, um, again, we pro-democracy Russians just cannot afford uh, being skeptical about all this and uh, understand that the entire world might be skeptical about all these prospects uh, of the situation inside Russia, but we have to seize its future, and uh, this normal Russia, and we have to fight for it every day, every second. Uh, we have to sacrifice a lot. The cost of our freedom, the cost of our democracy is so high, but again, it's, this is the only way to to have stability everywhere in the world, <laughs> to have uh, Ukraine's victory sustainable or uh, any situation in the region and in the world sustainable. Again, only democracy in Russia is uh, the only answer to everything. As for your question about these trends and tendencies, uh, Well, the regime was becoming stronger. It didn't immediately start all these repressions. Of course, it was a very creepy authoritarianism. Uh, We didn't uh, wake up to dictatorship, right? It was happening over years and years. And uh, it was because many people were very apolitical, uh, pathetic to everything, saying we are not interested in politics. And when people are not interested in politics, then politics is doing something to people. Of course, uh, there were several waves of repressions as we remember in 2011, 2012 and uh, many others. Uh, Of course, this is the biggest and most unprecedented wave, the most, the biggest ever. It's still not uh, like the ceiling for this regime. This regime is still capable of being more repressive. It's still like, again, if we compare even to Belarus, with uh, there at least uh, 1,500 uh, political prisoners with, um, versus uh, about 600 political prisoners in Russia and the population, if we compare all this, we understand that, yes, this regime can still put more people to prisons. This regime knows how to build gulags and uh, everything else and uh, how to manipulate fears of people and uh, how to even increase even this unprecedented propaganda. Plus, of course, we understand that, uh, yes, it's very possible that death penalty will be uh, will be back to Russia, yes. And uh, there are a lot of lawyers. Uh, like, we are working a lot with uh, Russian lawyers now, and even their opinion is like, yeah, it's very possible, if not this year, like very, very soon. Yes, this is a logic of this repressive machine it needs to be to eat more people it needs to become more and more repressive harsher and harsher otherwise like the entire logic of it, it just it's survival for, the, for this regime at the same time when there is more pressure they don't know the potential of people we all believe in potential of people but also we don't know when it's possible when it will happen when people it will be too much it, it's impossible to put so much pressure all the time it's, it will be it will happen it will there will be some pushback So we really believe in that. We should prepare for all these changes. We understand that this is now like a lot of things, a lot of things on our plate. We have to, again, stop the war, do a lot of things to save all this uh, Russian community, Russian civil society, which is inside the country, which is in exile and do other things, but also simultaneously prepare for this uh, window of opportunity for this uh, transition period and be really prepared We know what exactly to do on day one, on day two and everything else.
0: Many thanks, Natasha. An academic in me has to comment that there's a study by political scientist Christian Davenport where he has shown that actually the best predictor of state repression against the public is the past use of repression against the public by that state. right? And we see from that perspective Putin is consistent. The Kremlin is at least acting as um, most dictatorships do because they used uh, repressions in the past. They just keep uh, using it more and more. Miriam, what do you think, specifically in terms of the dynamic of the regime? Is that a natural development, or do you think the war served some sort of radical trigger that changed maybe the scale of this dynamic, or this is something that we would have witnessed either way, with or without the war?
1: You're asking such an important question. It's a big question. I've been wrestling with it a long time. Maybe you'll remember when was the end of the transition paradigm published? <laughs> was that in the '90s? I think we've been consciously or not consciously living with this idea of transition. And it's an idea that's important to us and to me personally, so very much defines the entire trajectory of my career. And yet what we're seeing right now, and there's no other way to describe it, except, you know, I wanted to say that this sentence for Kara Moore's a Stalinist Navalny, of course, called it fascist. So maybe there are two words to describe it. Yet, it's hard for me to believe that this window is completely closing. Russia has been open for 20 years. I'm thinking, like in categories, I'm thinking from, say, 91 to Putin's third term in 2022, Balotnaya. And we saw this key moment in Balotnaya that, look, there's a political opposition. There's serious movement. And the regime saw that too. And then the advent of the repressive laws, and then this 12, 13 years of struggle. And I would say, so in addition to 2014 and seeing successful Maidan in in Ukraine and the, the inspiration of the revolution of dignity, but also the division in Russian society over Crimea. By far, not all Russians supported it, although that was seen as something that Putin had to do to bring back the popularity he was missing and, you know, was interpreted as this is how the regime keeps going because the regime has run out of ideas. Then what do we have? We have the comeback of Navalny. Again, many people had thought that that's over. There's no, you know, no possibility of big movements. But with on um, du 2018, the entrance of youth, and Navalny comes out with just a machine. It's a new phenomenon for Russian politics. We have not had an opposition force like this Where there's a ground game, there's a study of political opinion, there's political technology in a positive sense, in the sense of crafting an image, you know, trying to talk to the voters and appeal to the voters, which is a different model, I would say, from Russian oppositionists and a positive one um Navalny and the wonderful Russia of our future Tr- imagine it don't don't be angry and complain about repression all the time let's build that future right this incredibly positive message and i have to say um and not just i mean i've been talking about the navalny movement um, or movement but in that really difficult time 2012 to 20 uh, to february 2022 Incredible resilience in civil society, explosion of new media, of um, investigations of civil society using the internet, internet very open in this period. And at the same time, of course, repression. But I guess I saw that 2012 to 2022, not just closing. Yes, civic space was closing, but I saw it as struggle. I saw civil society coming back okay, you know, uh, the the large um, opposition media or independent media that had come into being, okay, those are going to be destroyed. But those same individuals who had 20 years of experience in a free Russia, they took their talents and they created other ways of continuing to work and were massively successful. We saw that in media, we saw that in political organizing, we saw that in civil society where people reinvented how to do this. But the experience of being open for 20 years gave them that, that struggle, that possibility. Were these terrible laws on the books? Yes. Was there op- oppression? Of course. I was thinking of another political prisoner, and that's Andrei Pivovarov, who was arrested prior, but we were all shocked because he was on his way out. And how did all of us understand these things? And if you're willing to leave, they usually let you leave. Pivovatov's case was different, and there was something starting, looking back, maybe there was something starting to happen from the referendum, from 2020 referendum into 2021, where they were already setting the stage for this war. Exactly, and Belarus protests, too, which happened around that same time. Belarus is another one of these key moments.
0: Excellent review. Thank you, Miriam. It's very important to see how this unraveled. Yeah, Natasha.
2: Well, yes, it looks like uh, the regime at first used all this repression at first, like applied selective ways, Uh, not again, putting everybody uh, in prison, but just uh, showing signals, uh, just showing this fear in people. Like it can be like one person uh, could be in jail for four years just for a simple tweet or just for, I don't know, playing Pokemon in the church, things like that, just uh, here and there. And so that, again, everybody would see like, yes, yes, I could be the next. Uh, But again, it wasn't massive. And it was probably the first goal was to strengthen the regime itself, to sow fear among everybody, to have, have uh, atomization of the society. This is what the Soviet regime was based on. Again, everybody wouldn't trust anybody, wouldn't build any networks. This is probably the, the biggest enemy for so the regime is when people are coordinate, work together, do something together. And this is like the first... Uh, area of attack for the regime to destroy any infrastructural projects. What we see, uh, and there are many experts saying that it's very possible that the regime started to prepare for the war. And it's very possible that uh, the war could be even earlier. Yes, in 2020 events in Belarus uh, and also um, that uh, unsuccessful attempt to murder Navalny back then in 2020. It's very possible that it prolonged the beginning of the war. But now we see that, yes, since it's already war conditions, they need to be like... the full speed and everything is accelerated. Like the There are more and more uh, repressions, more and more repressive laws, more and more arrests. Uh, again, we have never seen so many people in jail. We have never seen, again, over 20,000 people detained for the entire war protest. Could be more, but uh, again, they immediately started to introduce all these laws. Russian legislation already by that point was so repressive. It was enough just to use the, what they, they had, but no, they needed to just they won't stop yeah they they won't stop yes even like in this uh, 14 months they will how many 38 uh, new legislation already <laughs> and very fast also the speed of how they um, adopt this laws it's like sometimes it's like so fast in the first readings only in 2023 20, out of uh, 38 uh, new laws uh, 32 were adopted like in the first reading very very fast the one was like in like 2 days <laughs> And again, the brutality is becoming also more like, again, if before the police was always brutal, but now what we see, it's like the, the brutality is even more. Or when they do something, the police in, in these um, detention centers, when even, when even there is a rape in the detention center, they
0: themselves publicize it just to, to scare more people. To scare more people. They used to hide it in the past. They don't hide it anymore. There's, there's an issue of labeling this, right? Because remember back into 2012, we called Duma the mad printer. How do you describe contemporary Duma? I don't even know, right? It's like makes you run out of definitions, honestly.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and new laws, like almost every day, just uh, already five new new laws just in April. Uh, of course, all this electronic draft. Yes, and, and, and now they're talking about referendums, uh, just could coincide them with presidential elections. And like, again, more and more, whatever <laughs> they need. But they don't need it. It's already there. It's already very repressive, it's already like very wide interpretation of extremists or separatists or terrorist laws or high treason laws, <laughs> now it's basically a yes, life sentence for, the, for, high, for
0: high treason. Two very important points here, right, first of all, we see that external dynamics often drives uh, the internal repressions, I wanted to make this point, so it's not just internal politics uh, that drives them, but very often, at least my observations, and I think um, Natalia, you agree. Uh, that, uh, for example, uh, when the regime sees uh, color revolutions spreading outside, uh, this is where usually we see the screws uh, being tightened domestically. It was the case, for example, since 2005, uh, since the color spread of color revolutions in Ukraine, Georgia, Kyrgyzstan, we've seen uh, this is where uh, domestically the presidential administration started to develop um, all of that uh, prohibitive and quote-unquote patriotic. Legislation and pretty much uh, throughout the last uh, decades, it's been the case, culminating effectively in this war. Uh, what we interpreted uh, as some insecurities on the regime side domestically might have been since 2020, Natasha, as you mentioned, just the preparation to this war, which is very important. Second, what Miriam and Natalia do you make of this? Of this, Natasha, as you've really uh, brilliantly described like absolutely insane amount of additional prohibitions, extra legislations, additional paperwork that they're coming up with, even if technically they don't really need it anymore. They have already 120,000 repressive laws that they can apply to each particular case. Do you think it's a sign of the strength of the regime or the weakness? Are they just paranoid? because they really maybe afraid, I don't know, people don't really support the war and that's why they need to tighten the screws so much. Or, as for example, some other scholars point out, uh, for example, Andrei Soldatov and Irina Baragan, colleagues of ours who have been studying FSB for many, many years, what they point out is that FSB has this inherent insecurity, that they really kind of are very uncertain about how much grip they have over the society, and uh, they essentially need to be confident, in an effort to be confident about that, they keep uh, passing new, more repressive uh, laws. And because FSB right now is in control over Russian domestic politics, they probably have been helped by the war. Eventually, they consolidate control. Maybe that's why we see uh, this unprecedented wave of repressions. What do you think? Miriam, my dear.
1: Soldatov, of course, this is his theme for Salvatov and Baragan, and they've been pointing this out for a long time, that the FSB has been in power and maybe never went anywhere. Um, Or if they went someplace, it was for a short time, and they were very resentful of it. I don't disagree at the same time, the whole machinery of persuasion, indoctrination, I, why do you need all these laws? Because you have to tell people one more time what to do. <laughs> you know, you're not just it's not a question of do you have a vehicle by which to put people away? Yes, you do. You have many such vehicles and you don't need them anymore. People get put away with no evidence at all. There's not necessarily even a crime, you know. These cases are ridiculous. Even still, just this constant drumbeat. So there's a piece about FSB control. There's also a piece about, you know, using not just media, but the entire apparatus. These these laws are meant, they're first of all about fear and setting expectations for how people uh, behave, as is the opinion polling I know there could be many debates and interpretations about the polling and what does it really say. Is it very passive support? You know, I think we can see that there's no active support of this war. That there it is, and people are not running out to enlist, and uh, people are not putting on Z's and buying up all the Z merchandise it's quite the contrary they can't you can't like no one is voluntarily putting on Z's. no one is lining up to go fight in Ukraine it's the opposite people are running away. so there's there, there's there's a need to persuade the FSB is, might be very much in charge and in fact has been in charge for a very long time yet you need the mechanics. And it's very strange. I don't necessarily understand how does public opinion, how does this this case that just played out with Masha Muscaloa? Muscaloa, it's super interesting. I'm very curious. Like they could take her, they could they can take a child away for no reason at all for drawing. And yet it was important to place her with her mother and not in an orphanage because something is worse, some kind of public opinion is still is still existing there.
0: There was also a public campaign, I will add here. There was actually a somewhat active public campaign to support Masha Moskaleva. Mm-hmm. Yes,
1: yes, that's right. There, there, there was. So uh, why don't I stop there? But um, it's, it, it, I, I think it's very nuanced.
2: Yes, but the case of Masha Moskalyova also shows how uh, the Kremlin is afraid of Russian youth. Uh, because even despite all this uh, repressive legislation or especially this new educational reform when again we have more uh, propaganda lessons and uh, patriotism lessons and physical culture lessons and everything else uh, again Russian school children Russian youth, teenagers they are still capable of critical thinking and they are still a lot of them are quite active uh, and uh, maybe um, um, uh, less fearless (laughs) than uh, more adult people and they are the ones all these teenagers And uh, they're the ones who are destroying the uh, banners uh, or um, burning them or doing something like uh, trying to, again, or uh, um, uh, doing graffiti and uh, other stuff. And uh, we see that now there is, again, another legislation of uh, uh, increasing the authorities of the youth detention centers to identify those who are socially uh, dangerous (laughs) elements and should be detained, all these minors. Yeah, so it's quite a concerning development as well. Um, Your question was uh, if it's a uh, sign of um, strength or weakness. I think it was always a sign of weakness. (laughs) Uh, Even when the regime was weak itself, uh, in uh, 2005, for example, when uh, I think it first first started with the speech of uh, Nikolai Patrushev at the State Duma, when he was saying that, yes, there are color revolutions, that, uh, again, the State Department of Americans, everything else, and we should, again, tighten our legislation and... uh, uh, all these uh, yeah,
0: very dangerous precedents. I'm sure he always ma- also mentioned NED, N- Nation Download for Democracy. They always, Miriam. <laughs> yes, yes, yes.
2: NED is an undesirable organization, number one, and it's uh, very well deserved. He was, I would say, a little bit ahead of the curve back then because it was the Time uh, when uh, people were quite happy. Uh, it was a time when uh, ec- economy-wise it was fine. The people have uh, having incomes every year, and it was like eight, eight consecutive years when the like you know, personal incomes were growing. People were more focused on, I don't know, on travels, on on like earning money, on doing something, right? And this is like when we had this so-called social contract between the society and the authorities. And uh, I remember there were still a lot of people who didn't believe in that. And again, all those who are in a pro-democracy movement and still are, many are in exile or in jail now, of course. But back then, when we had rallies, they were small. If we would have like 1,000 people, it would be, all what such in Moscow? What a great big rally we had. What a success, right? And it was 2005. These marches of dissenters, usually, I don't know, 100, 500 maximum. Yes, 1,000 was out of uh, scale. So they were a little bit of the uh, curve uh, began uh, being afraid of their own population and not being sure about their own popularity. (laughs) This is how they took... took any opportunity to change the situation again when there was uh, Beslan instead of again, fighting terrorism it was a way to uh, abolish gubernatorial elections or uh, in, again no, to introduce this uh, city managers instead of mayoral elections just to, to, to be more and more controlling people again not believing and but at the same time understanding the um, these polls I think that's why uh, they don't do mobilization right now in big cities. They understand that, again, how people would be, <laughs> would be uh, what the attitude of the people would be in, in those places. And uh, that's why uh, the mobilization and uh, drafting everything else is happening in the poorest uh, regions of Russia. Of course, it was a deliberate policy of the Kremlin to uh, impoverish those uh, regions. Uh, but now, again, uh, people from there, it's basically the tax on poverty. <laughs> those who are poor, they are being drafted at the, at the moment. Later on, any repressions, they were not because of the strength, uh, but more because of the weakness or any other things, like 2013, this presidential election, so-called, when, uh, again, the main uh, opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, was, again, banned from elections, and all these uh, <laughs> cases uh, stopped, started to pile against him, uh, charges against him. Uh, or, by that time, uh, another leader of the opposition, Boris Nemtsov, was assassinated, and, uh, yes. Why, if you are so popular, if you are, why you need to just eliminate all your competitors immediately? And so on and so forth. Like, again, it's uh, always uh, the sign of weakness while they have, of course, this uh, the authority on violence, the opportunity on violence, uh, but it's a sign of
0: weakness. So it's a sign of weakness, but they're also doing it because they can, right? Because if they couldn't, probably, if there was a lot of, Maybe societal opposition to that. Uh, probably there will be certain constraints. I don't know. What Miriam? What do you think about what Natasha said? Do you agree? I struggle between the two things that
1: both of you just said. Between this is not a, this is not a confident way to run a country because it's ultimately very shallow. And if they weren't so strong, how could they get away with it year after year and? with increasing uh, abuses, continue to get away with it. I don't mean to introduce yet yet another element, but the economy turned out to be stronger than we anticipated. And it turned out that global
0: connectivity maybe isn't as much of a factor. Of a constraint as we thought, right? Right. Yeah. At least not on Russia, maybe on China. We're hoping. (laughs) Maybe on China it will work out. (laughs) So,
1: you know, there's seems stronger, seems stronger. One of, my, one of my friends said, please don't keep saying that Russian government is brittle <laughs> when, they, when they're putting people away. And uh, seem, there seems to be no end in sight. Don't, don't keep saying
0: that Putinism is brittle. So unfortunately, we also need to realize, right, that they are getting away with this this is where maybe something that we've discovered in uh, since Navalny got back to Russia, right? The expectation was that maybe there will be more uh, resistance from the side of the civil society when he came, but the protests were actually not as pronounced People probably already were scared and I uh, atomized everything, Natasha, that you highlighted. And as a result, uh, this wave of repressions did not really face a lot of resistance, um, which uh, p- partly I'm responsible for as well, because instead of being there, I left way before. So that's, I think it's an important reservation to make. But this is unraveling. What do you think is going to happen? A lot of people are saying that, again, I understand it's probably an impossible question, as many of the questions that we're asking here. A lot of people are assuming that uh, this is the wave of the repressions and the regime that really is limited to uh, Putin's longevity. There's a saying in Russia right now, uh, when asked for how, how long are you planning to stay abroad? Uh, the answer is papage, which means пока Putin жив. Which is a play of words in Russian, because Bam means permanent residence. So what do you think uh, is to what extent do you think this is true? We're really at this point betting one uh, uh, medical system on Russia, or I don't know, you're expecting uh, some other unprecedented developments which may turn this trend around. Perhaps Russia loses badly as a result of the courage and heroic resistance of Ukraine. And uh, we'll see this eventually will come. Uh, Back at Kremlin, people will, in Russia will stop accepting this and eventually rebel against this oppression.
1: A couple of things. First of all, there are all these leaks coming out and assessments that uh, everything's a stalemate. The assessment prior to the start of the war was that Ukraine would uh, hold out a week. I would not dismiss the possibility of a Ukrainian victory sooner rather than later. Putin seems to believe that time is on his side and that dragging things out, Ukraine will feel that it's futile, Europe's consensus will erode. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. So the economy is not in shambles, but it also can't deliver growth. I don't believe that there's a genuine pro-war consensus. I don't believe that there's an enthusiasm for the war. Uh, Polls tell us that people are anxious, people are depressed, people are fearful. There's an enormous amount of negativity. We see lots of evidence of Russian soldiers leaving. Uh, Desertion is very high. Um, We see all these videos of them making all kinds of appeals. Not just that they're badly supplied, but that you know, there's no morale. I guess I wouldn't. Uh, Ukrainians are telling us that a victory is possible. I wouldn't completely dismiss that. And then the other piece of the law, of the of the equation is that. Um, In 2024, US, you know, becomes obsessed with its own elections. And, you know, really, like, are we just really going to, you know, maybe, maybe we will become entirely self engrossed and, and, but maybe, maybe we won't, maybe we will put things on a long term footing and produce weapons, armaments, and so forth on a much bigger scale. And maybe the long term is that Ukraine will be much better equipped than Russia over a medium term. I think it's all about the the war. I think the the next period is uh, is at least as uh, unpredictable as the last couple of years.
2: Yes, I think Miriam put it all very brilliantly. It's very difficult to add something. I just started saying that uh, you, Masha, started saying that uh, we didn't succeed in Russia with all the changes because the protests were not enough or something like that. It's, uh, again, overestimating the role of protests. I think uh, we are all uh, are now looking for some uh, just universal recipe of how to stop the war, of how to like uh, change the situation inside Russia. Of course, it's it's not Yes. Yeah. So, yeah of, of course, it's not only about protests. Of course, uh, the civil society, the grassroots movement should be stronger. Uh, many of them should survive now in all this expeditory mode, where, where they are like unsettled, stateless, <laughs> homeless everywhere, and just not only um, uh, become saved, but become stronger uh, because they are now. Many of them are now uh, have the access to democratic uh, expertise and everything else, um, and uh, but also again. Miriam was saying about economy yes we thought that uh, because of sanctions and the Russian economy would collapse faster well there are still a lot of countries benefiting on this war profiteering on this war <laughs> there are a lot of countries helping to evade these uh, sanctions even though those countries of the democratic world that are saying uh, very right words about supporting Ukraine and uh, maybe wrong words about um, all Russians about all this collective guilt of all Russians and uh, putting uh, all uh, Russians in one basket and not differentiating Russians on the basis of their values and um, actions, uh, but only on the basis of their ethnicity and citizenship, Uh, even those countries can do something like um, like helping uh, all this trade mechanism are still there in place and uh, very often we are saying, okay, if you want to uh, close borders for activists, please also close borders for drones and microchips and other <laughs> things. Uh, so be be very consistent in, in what you say. And of course, uh, all this uh, factor of narrative is also very important because, again, um, people inside Russia, those who are still resisting and those who are in, in exile, who are also doing everything, uh, contributing to the entire war... Um, Activity and pro-democracy movement and all. They shouldn't be demoralized. They should be vice versa, encouraged and supported and, uh, and all that. So this is important. Uh, so this uh, common solidarity uh, is very important. Like um, not only putting more and more sanctions, but uh, enforcing those sanctions is important. <laughs> and uh, again, there are so many factors. Of course, uh, Thinking, we should think what to do with all these elites. And I maybe believe in the elites less than I believe in civil society, but still, we need to think about all that and how to. Because, yeah, like even the latest post from the jail by Eliyar Yashin, he's saying that he meets everybody in jail <laughs> generals, uh, <laughs> I don't know, uh, officials, uh, people from different ministries, and all that. Yeah, we, we see a lot, and of course. Uh, uh, we understand that the uh, number of political prisoners is, o- is also very, very conservative. If, if, even the memorial itself says it's at least five or six times more. And those people who are in jails, like Ilya like Vladimir and Navalny, less, of course, more, uh, those who can uh, see more people <laughs> around them. Uh, they see that so many people are in jails for their entire war activity, for their position. Um, so again, um, it won't happen... Uh, as fast as we want. Uh, but again uh, this regime doesn't have a future even if it's a, yes, if it's a personalistic uh, regime and uh, it a lot depends on the Putin and again survival for him not to put uh, all the power to all, like to some group. Uh, it's like uh, many of them. Could have some uh, political power, but not uh, like finance, for example. Or some have this access to finance, but they don't have uh, law enforcement on their side and so on. So he is very, very skillful in uh, in dividing and conquering and uh, manipulating, uh, especially elites. He knows, uh, again, being a KGB officer, he knows how, how to do all that. So it's very possible that, yes, it depend- a lot will change when Putin will will not be there, but it's not only about him, right? It's, uh, our biggest battlefield will be for the values of the Russian society, which were like, again, so much zombified for by so many years of propaganda and by everything else and so traumatized and so like, um, so it's not only about putin it's very much a, 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 about him it, it it depends on again who will be next very in, in history uh personality means a lot it could be somebody who is more <laughs> leaning uh, to like some liberal way and who would like to talk to the west and would try to Uh, say, like, we need uh, to improve our economy, please lift some sanctions, and and we will, like, I don't know, release political prisoners for, like, maybe some small steps or something like that. Very possible. We should be prepared, by again, for all possible varieties, but mostly we should be strengthening ourselves, our civil society, and uh, journalists, everybody else, should become more and more professional, stronger, and more coordinated, and, again, um, we shouldn't be relying only on Putin's death, (laughs)
0: Completely agree. And I think this sense of agency, uh, like it's very hard to sort of embrace it at this particular moment, a very dark moment, right? Uh, As Miriam said, the end of transition parody, the Korotis article, which was actually published by Journal of Democracy, by National Endowment of Democracy back in early two thousand. Certainly the moment where it's very important to uh, try and uh, uh, figure out what it is that depends on us that we can do. Uh, This I actually often find is one of the biggest uh, problems on the side of the Russian society. People just don't feel at all like they have any role, any possibility to change anything at all. And one of the ways, like of course, in the past Uh, What the NGOs uh, were trying to do is try to uh, actually empower people, try to create the sense of agency, at least within the very little narrow circle of what they were, uh, what was under their control. Now, Natasha, thank you for envisioning my uh, probably the last question. Uh, So with that dark reality in mind, what can we do about it now? It now, right? And Miriam, I uh, would be really interested in your opinion. I wanted to mention one thing, one topic that we haven't covered today is also the arrest of uh, US citizens in Russia, right? the um, Then um, recently um, uh, NPR actually came out with a publication entitled Russia's Jailing an Increasing Number of Private American Citizens. Actually, they're not uh, as many of them, uh, but there's actually every life counts, right? Along with uh, um, Paul Willen, who is still in jail uh, recently. We've, seen this new, uh, we've heard this news of Evan Geshkovich arrested, the brilliant uh, journalist from uh, Wall Street Journal, uh, who was just doing his job. Overall, there are about four, I think, uh, private uh, US citizens who are currently being jailed uh, in Russia. So, this talks of the broader question what can we do about the situation? Is the possibility of maybe perhaps certain exchanges, certain pressure, leverage that can be applied on the Kremlin in order to Free uh, those people along with the Russian swap, Arnajan. Miriam.
1: Sure. So let me start by coming back where, where we started, which is with, with the case of Vladimir Kramurza. There's been a major push on the Hill um, to have him designated as unlawfully detained, which would then open the possibility for the State Department negotiating for his release the way that it does. Once the status is conferred, the, similar to the Grimer trade um, that that happened
0: in December for an arms dealer. The basketball star, Brittany Griner, who was exchanged, yeah, who was freed, freed in December. Mm-hmm.
1: Last I checked, I think it was 85 senators and congressmen who were calling on the State Department to confer the status to Vladimir Karamurza. No one likes trades, trades are terrible, trades um, encourage more such incidents. And as a general policy, nobody's going to question that that trades are not great. And yet it has come to trades, not just Grimers, the most recent, but there's, you know, and I wish we had Vladimir Kramurza with us because he would tell us in detail all the Soviet instances where it had to come to that. I'm thinking of, of, of my dear friend, Nick Danilov. Um, who was uh, um, a, a U.S. journalist who was um, taken prisoner explicitly to have to have a person to trade back in the 1980s, and there there have been you know many many other other cases. This it's necessary to to save their lives. I think under the circumstances is is justified, and whether you know of course with with the case of Evan. Uh, with the case of Whelan, and and perhaps more broadly, and I guess I'm just saying it's not precedent setting uh, to be doing this in the case of um, of dissidents such as Vladimir.
0: And just a quick clarification: Vladimir has a um, uh, UK citizenship, so it's probably easier to do in his case, right, than it is in case of other uh, Russian citizens who don't have dual citizenship, right?
2: Yeah, yes, and he has also the rights to uh, be designated as a U.S. national. Uh, his uh, family, his wife, and his three children are U.S. citizens, uh, so he has a very strong ties with the United States. He's a British citizen since 2001. Uh, so, yes, uh, much more um, you know, opportunities for him, but also a huge urgency because of his, again, health condition. It's like it's very survival for him to be exchanged as soon as possible. Plus, we see that the Kremlin... Um, Puts people in jail for many reasons. Uh, yes, for uh, to, to be re- more repressive, to so fear, to um, just to punish, uh, but also uh, to use it as a, as a trade <laughs> trade asset. Uh, and uh, all, all people like even of course they are they are there f- for, for reasons uh, just to get to be exchanged. Uh, uh, not only because, uh, well, uh, as you know, this uh, media or this uh, freedom of speech, Speech, one freedom of speech in Russia is huge. You know that absolutely all independent media were forced out from Russia, and uh, what two hundred sixty-five websites of all these independent media and, uh, and civil society organizations were blocked. Uh, Uh, Over 11,000 internet resources were blocked, Uh, uh, 3,500 mirrors of those uh, resources were blocked. Meta was uh, uh, designated as an extremist organization. Uh, uh, Instagram and Twitter, they are blocked in Russia. And what was next uh, is again to silence Western media and (laughs) Again, because there were still correspondents of some uh, Western uh, media outlets in Russia, and it's uh, it's for first purpose, but another purpose. He's such a good uh, again trade uh, asset uh, for the Kremlin. And
1: and I should just add, there's a huge campaign going on to release yes. Navalny, and also for for health reasons, and you know, and they're they're all political prisoners. <laughs> they should be released, and mm-hmm. it, it's an incredible campaign with. Um, uh, signatories from among uh, Nobel Prize winners, you know, famous different famous uh, representatives, and um, just you know, having spoken about different different measures, and what I've heard indirectly is that the Kremlin won't engage in a conversation about involvement and yet there's other means that they're of looking to bring pressure, even when the Kremlin is is not willing to even have these discussions. Whereas, with, in the case of Americans, it seems clear that they are looking for those conversations. But even when they're not, the public pressure is 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 very important to keep it to keep it going.
2: Plus, publicity always um, it's another layer of protection for those who are in jail, and it's it's very important. It, very often, it saves lives if uh, there is an attention to this or that prisoner. It's really very crucial.
0: Thank you so much. A highly important point. So on our side, uh, let's make sure that we continue. I know you both are doing a fantastic job already in that regard to put pressure, uh, publicize the situation, right? And try essentially to make the public, both the United States and Russia, Western Russia, aware of these horrible uh, uh, violations that are unraveling. It's dark at the moment, uh, but we're still hoping uh, future will be better. And I wanted to conclude today with the words of our dear friend, uh, Vladimir Karimorzo, from his last wording when he was uh, sentenced uh, with horrible charge. Uh, he said, this day will come as inevitably as spring follows, even the coldest winter. Then our society will open its eyes and be horrified by what terrible crimes were committed on its behalf. From this realization, from this reflection, the long, difficult, but vital path towards the recovery and restoration of Russia, its return to the community of civilized countries, will begin. And hopefully, uh, that's exactly what will happen. Thank you very much, Miriam and Natalia, for this really important conversation. And let's hope the next time we reconvene, uh, we have some good news. Thank you. Thank you, Masham. Russia will be free. You've been listening to Russian Roulette, We hope you enjoyed this episode and tune in again soon. Russian Roulette releases new episodes every two weeks on Thursdays and is available wherever you get your podcasts. So please subscribe and share our episodes online. And be sure to check out all the latest analysis by the Europe, Russia, and Eurasia program at csis.org.